0: How many of you have read the best selling kids' book, Are You My Mother? All right, okay. Well, it's a classic and it's about a baby bird uh, searching for his mother. Uh, The mother goes for food and the baby bird hatches. Where's my mother? Well, he can't fly. And so he falls out of the nest and he goes on a walk to find his mother. And he encounters a kitten. Uh, a hen, a dog, a cow, an old car, a boat, an airplane, and an excavator, which he calls a snort. Uh, he's, he's hopeful at first, but as his journey continues, he grows worried. And at the height of his crisis, after the snort picks him up, he shouts, where am I? I want to go home. I want my mother. Then the snort gently places the baby bird back into the, his nest, and his mother returns and asks, Do you know who I am? And with joy, the baby bird uh, replies, Yes, I know who you are. You are not a kitten. You are not a hen. You are not a dog. You are not a cow. You are not a boat or a plane or a snort. You are a bird and you are my mother. And the mother bird nestles uh, her baby beneath her comforting wing. Well, that little bird was comforted to know who his mother was. Who is your mother? And I'm not talking about your birth mother. So please listen carefully or you may confuse me with a theological liberal here. When it comes to our salvation in Christ, we need to know who our mother is. Now make no mistake, God is our father. Christ is our brother. The Spirit is our helper. God is not mother in any sense. It's blasphemous to think and to talk that way. I'm not talking about God as mother, I'm talking figuratively as Paul did. I'm asking you, who is your mother to get you thinking about your relationship to the law and gospel? So is your mother the slave woman or the free woman? And maybe you've never thought about your faith in those terms before, but you really need to know who your mother is. Because it makes all the difference in knowing who you are and how you are to live. So here's here's the big point for you. Brothers and sisters, like Isaac, we are children of promise and the free woman. Therefore, we should live as free children and not as slave children. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul told them that those of faith are children of Abraham now he establishes that those of faith are also children of Sarah. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's dig in. First point, you won't want to live under the law when you actually listen to the law. You won't want to live under the law when you actually live, uh, listen to the law. Paul is flabbergasted as to why the Galatians would ever want to live under the law. He asked them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? If they only listened, well, they would hear the law say, you don't want to be under the law. The first time Paul uses... Law in verse 21, he refers to the Mosaic law, including circumcision, dietary laws, and all the Jewish rituals. Paul's second use of law in verse 21 refers to the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, because he follows with, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. That's from Genesis, part of the law. Paul uses the book of the law of Moses to argue for why the Galatians really don't want to live under the law. Calvin rightly said, to be under the law signifies here to come under the yoke of the law on the condition that God will act toward you according to the covenant of law and that you in return bind yourself to keep the law. So to desire to be under the law is to say, I choose to earn eternal life by keeping the law perfectly. That's insane. That's insane. Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So why on earth would anyone want to be under the law? when they cannot do the law. That's a terrible burden to carry. If we'd only listen to the law, then we'd hear why we don't ever want to be under the law. Next point. The history of Ishmael and Isaac shows that everyone is a child of one of two mothers. Verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Ishmael, Isaac, two metaphors describing two types of children from two different mothers. God promised Abraham that his very own son would be his heir, which implied that Sarah would bear the son of of promise, But in the pain of Sarah's infertility, Abraham and Sarah grew impatient and tried to fulfill God's promise their way. Sarah was barren and beyond childbearing years, so God's promise of a son was impossible. That's important to the story. Not going to happen. Impossible. So Abraham and Sarah came up with something. Abraham would sleep with Hagar, Sarah's slave girl. And Sarah would bear children By Hagar. Hagar was young. Sarah was old. And and, um, Hagar was fertile. And Sarah was infertile. And Hagar was able. And Sarah was unable. Hagar seemed more reasonable. Hagar was a human idea. A human effort. A human attempt to fulfill God's gracious promise. But God's promises aren't fulfilled by human effort. They are fulfilled by God's effort. God's effort alone, Hagar bore Ishmael, son number one. And as verse 23 states, Ishmael was the son of the slave, born according to the flesh. So according to the flesh says at least two things. One, Hagar was young and fertile, and she bore Ishmael quite naturally. Two, and this is more significant, Ishmael was born according to the carnal desires, scheming, and working of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 17, Abraham pleaded with God that Ishmael would be the son of promise. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Isaac was the son of God's promise, the son of God's sovereign and miraculous, and electing grace. God didn't choose Ishmael. Ishmael was human work. Isaac was God's work. All along, God planned for the son of promise to come from Sarah's barren womb. The offspring would be named through Isaac. Isaac's birth was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. There was nothing Sarah could do to make her old womb produce a son. Science was no hope. Either God fulfilled his promise or Sarah had no son. But Hebrews 11:11 11, 11 says, "By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised." Sarah received the son of promise by grace. Through faith. And this is why Paul wrote, the son of the free woman was born through promise. Promise. Promise equals God's unassisted grace. Human will, human choice, human effort didn't help at all. Isaac was born of the free woman, Sarah, because God made a promise and sovereignly fulfilled it. Now, why is that important to the Galatians? Because Isaac's birth to Sarah is analogous to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Isaac shows that works of the law play no part in justification whatsoever. Everyone has one of two mothers either Hagar the slave woman or Sarah the free woman. It's either salvation according to flesh or salvation according to God's promise, either salvation by works or salvation by grace, not both. Dr. Riken put it like this, from the very beginning, there was a fundamental spiritual difference between the two sons. One was born by proxy, the other by promise. One came by works, the other came by faith. One was a slave, the other was free. Thus Ishmael and Isaac represent two entirely different approaches to religion, law against grace, flesh against spirit, self-reliance against divine dependence. End of quote. Who is your mother? Is your salvation about law or grace? Your effort or God's effort? the judaizers and jewish galatians had fallen into bad thinking hey we are like isaac we are natural descendants of abraham and sarah the gentiles aren't oh but they can be adopted if they are circumcised and obey the mosaic law like us and and and, and as soon as they do we'd be glad to welcome them as family that's not gospel They forgot that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, and those children of promise, they come from all the nations, not simply Israel. Who is your mother? Next, the historical motherhood of Hagar and Sarah reveals two covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of gospel. Paul speaks allegorically Or figuratively, the historic Abrahamic narrative would would really connect with the Galatian Jews. They would track with Paul here. And so Paul uses it to illustrate two views of justification and salvation. Hagar represents one covenant, and Sarah represents another covenant. Hagar represents the covenant of law or the covenant of works, Sarah represents the covenant of gospel or the covenant of grace. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace, and the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of law, though the Mosaic covenant was graciously given to Israel in light of the promise of Christ. Now, I hope I can make this clear. Paul said, one covenant is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar the slave girl represents the covenant of law which God gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. This covenant of law is the Sinaitic covenant or Mosaic covenant or the Old Covenant. It represented Judaism with all of its regulations and rituals and formalities. And certainly God's covenant of law, it was a gracious gift his people to expose for them their sin and guilt, to foreshadow Christ and to prepare them for Christ, but the law enslaved them. In the old covenant, the Jews often got religion quite wrong. They took pride in their Jewishness and missed that being God's people was about faith in God's promises and not ethnicity. Ethnicity. So here's how the slave children, if you're if you're thinking, how did the slave children of Hagar think? Here's how they think about religion. God demands that I do and not do certain things. So I'm going to try to be good and obey his laws so that he accepts and loves me. I'll work hard at it, I'll be good. I can do this. Folks, that's slavery. That's slavery. That's thinking law-keeping or morality is your means of righteousness. The Hagar analogy is Paul's provocative way to warn the Galatians, if you live under the law, you are an Ishmaelite slave, not an Israelite free man. And that was shocking for them to hear. In verse 25, Paul says something very enlightening. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. First, Arabia is where the law was given outside the promised land. Hagar represents the law and being outside the promised land which foreshadows heaven. Second, when Paul says present Jerusalem, he refers to earthly Jerusalem the center of Jewish religion and ritual, or you could say Judaism after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Judaism from Paul's day on was like Hagar, enslaved to the law and not at all free in Christ. Present day Jews are children of Hagar, enslaved to the law of sin and death like their mother. Just like their mother. They are not true Israel. Regardless of their nationality, unbelieving Jews are actually associated with enslaved Hagar and Ishmael, not free Sarah and Isaac. That's thought provoking when you think of what Paul is actually saying here. And that's Paul's argument. That's what he's saying. On on to the other covenant the covenant of grace and freedom, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above, now there's a contrast, is free, and she is our mother. Paul was contrasting earthly Jerusalem with heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12 talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. All of redemptive history is ultimately about heavenly Jerusalem, united to Christ by faith. That's the whole trajectory of of Scripture. The Jerusalem above is the church under the reign and rule of Jesus. Believers are the children of Sarah, the children of God's promise, the children of God's adoptive grace, the children of faith. Now, Sarah's not mentioned in verse 26, but she's implied. So if you're confused now, might have lost you, perhaps this quote from the Reformation Study Bible will help you. Hagar is a fitting representative of unbelieving Jerusalem because her son, Ishmael, was born as the result of human effort. And the citizens of unbelieving Jerusalem seek to be justified by their works. Sarah is a fitting representative of believing Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, because her son Isaac was born as a result of trusting in God's promise, and the citizens of believing Jerusalem trust only in God's promises through Christ for their justification, end of quote. The citizens of the Jerusalem above are believers. Who is your mother? Oh, that we would all say, Sarah is our mother. We are children of heaven because of God's sovereign grace alone, granted to us through faith alone in Christ, the King of heaven alone. Only the church is of Sarah. Just as we are considered Abraham's sons because of faith, not ethnicity, we are also children of Sarah because of faith and not ethnicity. Faith associates us with Sarah because Sarah believed in the promised son. The promised son. What Dr. Hendrickson says about this is exciting. It's very exciting. It's very encouraging. He speaks of heaven, our eternal home. Listen to what he says. Heaven then is the church's mother, For it was heaven that gave birth to her children. Though many of them are still on earth, is not heaven their homeland? Are not their lives governed from heaven in accordance with heavenly standards? Are not their names inscribed in heaven's register? Is it not that their rights are secured and their interests promoted? Is it not to heaven that their thoughts and prayers ascend and their hopes aspire? Their Savior dwells there living evermore to make intercession for them. Some of their dear friends are there even now. And they themselves, if they place their trust in the heavenly high priest, will be there shortly to receive the inheritance of which they have in earnest even now. End of quote. Now Paul quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1. Isaiah 53, if you go back, describes the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the crucifixion event and how Christ bore the, the wrath of God for us. And then in Isaiah 54, Isaiah prophesies about the church. In Isaiah's day, Judah and Israel, the Old Testament church, fell barren and forsaken by God without his blessing. They were under law and quite unfaithful, and yet Isaiah prophesied of many children coming from the barren one Children outnumbering the children of the world. Isaiah had in mind a heavenly Jerusalem filled with children of promise, children of faith. Earthly Jerusalem has always only foreshadowed the greater heavenly Jerusalem with the true children of heaven from all the nations. Many Christians, they're preoccupied with earthly Jerusalem and that's confusing to me. I don't understand because of Paul's uh, thinking on this. We must look past the shadow of earthly Jerusalem to the eternal glory of a heavenly Jerusalem. Citizenship in the earthly Jerusalem means absolutely nothing. It means nothing. Whereas citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem means absolutely everything. Who is your mother? Are you a child of heaven? Has divine and sovereign grace given you life or are you working for it on your own? Next point, just like Isaac, believers are children of promise born of the spirit. Paul encourages the churches, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Do you know what that would have been for Jews and Gentiles to hear that together? How encouraged they must have been to hear that they weren't slaves, but but they were sons accepted and loved by God just like Isaac was. The Gentiles hearing this, I I am like Isaac, loved and accepted by promise. There, There is joy when you hear that you're children of promise. Well, what is a child of promise? Listen carefully, it is a child born of God out of spiritual barrenness. Not born of the flesh, but born of the spirit. A child of promise is born by a miracle of God's power and grace. Isaac, the son of promise, from Sarah's barren womb. Jesus, the greater son of promise, from Mary's virgin womb. And despite the barrenness of sin and death, God has brought forth many children of promise through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Our new birth is a miracle of God to the praise of God's glorious grace alone and God's son alone. Saints, how are you a child of promise and not a child of slavery? I mean, this is such a good reality, but how? How, how, how? Well, you need to know, and here's how. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save you to himself, and he achieved it through his only son to the praise of his glorious grace alone. Not your effort, but his grace in the crucifixion and resurrection of his son. People are not saved from their sin because they will it or they work it. That's Hagar, that's Ishmael, that's the law, that's slavery. Paul credits God alone for bringing forth his children. And God not only adopts slaves as sons, but he supernaturally gives his children life in Christ. Jesus taught this theology. If you're like, this is Paul, this is Jesus. He said in in John 3, 6 through 8, that which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Spirit. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, but of God. They were born of God. Why do so many Christians focus on the will of man in salvation? That's perplexing. Like Isaac, children of promise are born of the will of God, born of God's miracle of grace. In verse 29, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, but Isaac according to the spirit. The two mothers and and two sons are so very different. Many religious people, sadly, are trying really, really hard to be right with God by their religious activity but they're slaves. Free men and women, they don't work for it. They trust for it. Have you been born of the Spirit? Born of God? If so, you know who your mother is. You know who you are, a child of promise. Next, the children of promise should expect persecution from the children of slavery. This is a a tough point. But one that promises us great assurance. Paul added in in verse 29 But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Persecution is inevitable for the children of promise. Hagar's slave children persecute Sarah's free children. In other words, people enslaved to the law will persecute God's free children who are born of the Spirit and live free in Christ. If you read Genesis 21, you see that when Isaac grew and was weaned, uh, Abraham, he threw this great feast, it would have been amazing to be there, and Ishmael, who was a teenager at the time, laughed with contempt at Isaac, who was a young child. Ishmael persecuted Isaac because, and this is important to understand, Ishmael scorned God's promise and God's promised son. Unbelievers persecute believers because they hate God's grace and God's son. Saints, have we not seen this? Have we not felt this? The Judaizers, they created a culture of persecution within the churches in Galatia by adding works to faith for salvation, a wicked thing to do. And today, if you stand for God's law and gospel, if you believe and you tell people the truth of God's sovereign grace, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted from those outside the church, and here's the kicker, you will be persecuted from some inside the church. They will scorn you. They will laugh at you simply because you are children of promise. Children born of God's sovereign grace. Children who actually love and obey God. Dr. Ryken encourages us with this. Christians should be prepared for this. If what we really want is to be liked, then we will never make very good Christians. Indeed, One wonders if we can really be Christians at all. Martin Luther said, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he is Christian, end of quote. I find it very interesting that Muslims associate with Ishmael and not Isaac. And oh, how intense the persecution of Christians is in Islamic countries. Saints, why does the world hate us so much? Now, I know... What America is like, we've lived in comfort as Christians for a long time. Wake up. Look at the world. It's not like that. You have tons of enemies, people who hate you and never met you. They want you dead simply because you love Christ. Why? Why does the world hate us so much? Because they hate the promised son, Jesus Christ, and all that he represents. John Calvin said, quote, all persecutions arise from this source, that wicked men despise and hate in the elect the grace of God. End of quote. People living under the law, people living under the curse of the law, hate God's grace. And when they see the grace of God working in you, and they see the grace of God conforming you to the image of Christ, they hate you. They hate you. God's grace and spirit at work in you makes them feel guilty and ashamed and condemned, and they don't want want that. They want to feel good about themselves, and so what do they do? They attack you. They try to bring you down. Self-righteous people will do anything to avoid bowing the knee to Jesus and receiving his righteousness by faith alone. Why? 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 Why not bow to the supremacy and beauty of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus? Can you not see? Because God's grace opposes their self-love, their self-regard, their self-esteem, and their self-righteousness. If you are being persecuted because of God's law and God's gospel, then, brothers and sisters, take heart. Take heart cheer up. You suffer because you are children of the free woman. That's why. The next point is sobering. Consider it carefully. By God's sovereign grace, the children of slavery will not inherit the kingdom of heaven along with the children of promise. As uncomfortable as it may be for a secular society as ours to swallow, the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. It's polarizing. You can't, if you're faithful to it, you can't make it other than exclusive and polarizing. That's why it's so repulsive to so many people. They don't like that. Paul says with striking clarity and solemnity, but what does the scripture say if there is a message that America needs more now, that the American church needs now, is what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now understand, that's what Sarah told Abraham to do. Get rid of that slave girl. Get rid of her son. And when we hear that, that might sound really, man, just uncomfortable, right? I mean, it might sound cruel to you. It it might sound exclusive to you. Oh, couldn't there be a blessing for Ishmael too? Couldn't he be the co-heirs of the covenant promises? But please understand, what Sarah said was the will of God. In Genesis 21 verse 12, in response to what Sarah said about Hagar and Ishmael, God told Abraham, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God was cutting Hagar off. Ishmael off from his covenant promises. He chose to exclude them. Isaac and his offspring were God's choice. The children of promise would not come From ishmael they would come from isaac because isaac was god's child of promise isaac foreshadowed the greater child of promise jesus christ this is why paul said in verse 21 tell me tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not listen to the law See the law tells those under the law that they are like Ishmael cut off from the promise cut off from grace cut off from the gospel cut off from Christ cut off from the inheritance. Who's your mother? There is no inheritance for Hagar's children who are enslaved under the law like Isaac only the children of promise have a glorious inheritance waiting for them. Isaac was the son, the heir and yet Remember that Jesus Christ is the greater son, the greater heir who inherits all things. And and as Paul said in chapter three, verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, according to what? Promise. Promise. Amen, Paul, thank you. I like that, man. Promise. Self righteous people need to hear, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's what makes Christ attractive. Brothers and sisters, be not proud, for sovereign grace alone has made you sons and heirs. You are free, but not because you are better or smarter or better looking though some of you are, <laughs> but because God chose to give it to you in order for you to spend your life thanking and serving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Listen to the law. It, it, it tells you in great detail why you don't want to live under the law. Trust Christ alone and find yourself in heir with Isaac. And better yet, in heir with Christ, who is your mother. Brothers and sisters, this last point is for you and for me. Being children of the free woman means Christ has set us free to live free. I'd imagine verse 31 was both convicting and encouraging to the Galatians. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, when they're acting like slave children, boy, was that ever eye-opening, and yet so comforting to them to say, remember whose you are. To be the children of the free woman is to belong to Christ, for he is the promised son of the free woman, the one who won our freedom through a cross and through a tomb. Jesus is the promised seed. Jesus is the promised son. Jesus is the promised savior. Notice this important point about Galatians. Paul doesn't tell the Galatians to do anything until chapter 4, verse 12. Did you pick up on that? The imperatives. He's not telling them to do anything. He's just grilling them with the law and the gospel. Paul is careful to establish the law and the gospel first. Then he tells them what to do in light of the law and gospel and in light of who they are. Paul was not moralistic. He didn't start with, well, here's what you got to do for God. Here's fast and effective techniques for how to love and walk with God. That's not where he started. He started with the law. He started with the gospel, with what God did for them and who they were in Christ, and then he told them how to live. Paul picks up the pace in telling them how to live in chapter five, but only after he rigorously defended the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That theology was foundational to his call for them to respond and live a certain way. Do you know that there is an inseparable connection between theology and how you live? Theology is really important, hugely important. We must first know the law and gospel and that we are children of the free woman by faith alone and only then can we know how to live free by faith. When people get the law and gospel wrong, as the Judaizers did, they think they are living free, but they aren't. They're living as slaves. They do what is right in their own eyes. They make it up as they go. Look at, look at chapter five, verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you don't understand the law and gospel and your freedom in Christ, then you will not know how to live free. Now, pay close attention to this. Take the law without gospel, and you'll swell up with pride and self-righteousness or give up in defeat and hopelessness. Take the gospel without law and you'll be oblivious to your radical sinfulness, unaware of God's holiness and Christ's righteousness, and you'll rationalize sin as you indulge in radical immorality under the banner of grace. When you get the law and gospel right And you know who you are in Christ, then legalism and antinomianism die. And the law, gospel, law, or guilt, grace, gratitude make sense. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom to obey God's law as walking advertisements for His sovereign grace. When you know who your mother is, you know how to live. You know how to live. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Good stuff coming next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being honest, for telling us about Hagar and Sarah, for telling us about the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem, for telling us that it is all about your son and what he has done, his merits, his beauty, his supremacy, his glory, His works, His righteousness, He is justified before you. He is perfect in every way. And so, God, we know that if we trust Him alone for our salvation, we too are counted as righteous. We are children of promise by faith. It is your sovereign grace that has brought about many children to fill your heavenly Jerusalem. And so I pray, God, that we would look to Christ and find in him our greatest joy and pleasure and that we would be reminded that we are Sarah's children. We are believers. We are Abraham's children. We are believers. We belong to Christ, body and soul, both in life and in death. And we will praise you, God, for the sovereign work of grace that you have done to secure our adoption and our new birth and new life in Christ. Thank you, God. Now help us to live as children of promise by your spirit for your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.